This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the co- the young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako or bellbird has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have with us Craig Rainey, who's the economist and director of policy at the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. That means the National Unions for New Zealand Workers. And Matt McCartan will be coming on. He's a political organizer and trade unionist and helped to found the New Labour Party and the Alliance. And he's also started a couple of a basic uh, grassroots unions, uh, Unite and One Union. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Well, Craig, I think I might start with asking about um, an economic question. I believe the instructions to the Reserve Bank now includes not only keeping inflation down, but also being aware of employment levels. Why was it necessary to add this to their instruction? And do you believe that its emphasis will continue under the new government? Could you briefly talk about this? And what was the effect on employment by the effort to keep interest rates below 3% in the 1990s? Morning, Marvin. I'm sure there's nothing your listeners want more than first thing in the afternoon is to talk about monetary policy, but I'll, I'll give it a go and try and keep it interesting. Um, in terms of um, the Reserve Bank, you're absolutely right. The Reserve Bank had a thing called the dual mandate introduced um, in 2017. That dual mandate required that the Reserve Bank not only targets um, uh, inflation to be what we call the, the centre point, the mid-band, which is 2%, um, but also to have reference to what is called maximum sustainable employment. Um, now, that maximum sustainable employment can be read many ways, but it's often read um, as meaning um, an employment rate in which unemployment is not adding further to inflationary pressures or where unemployment is not so high that it's actually it's dragging the rest of the economy down. Um, this is uh, an idea 
um, postulated by um, economists in the 1960s and 1970s um, called the Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment, or NIRU, um, to use um, the technical phrase. Um, what that means is essentially um, economists, many economists believe that if unemployment is so low um, that it acts as an inflation um, a, a multiplier um, because wage demands go up, uh, employers can't find employees, and as a consequence, inflation starts to rise. Um, now, um, the Reserve Bank was given the dual mandate, um, and um, usually New Zealand likes to think of itself as being ahead of the pack um, when it comes to social reform. Um, but actually, in this case, New Zealand was very far down the list of countries uh, that introduced this dual mandate. And the US Federal Reserve, which is the equivalent body in the US, has a dual mandate. Um, the um, European Central Bank has a dual mandate of sorts. Um, the most OECD countries have a dual mandate. The Australian government, the Australian um, uh, Reserve Bank, has a triple mandate, which is not only to reduce inflation, but is also to keep unemployment low and to encourage economic growth. Um, so New Zealand was basically catching up with the rest of the world when it came to the introduction of that dual mandate. Now, what that means for um, the Reserve Bank um, is that when it makes an interest rate decision, it has to calculate not only will that interest rate decision uh, push inflation in the right direction, will it do so in a way that doesn't uh, um, exacerbate further unemployment or cause um, unemployment to fall so low that actually that increases inflation. So that's essentially what it's trying to do. All right. What was the effect of this, either, either of you, in the 90s? Sure. So um, in many countries, and New Zealand wasn't alone, um, the, 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 the zeal to reduce inflation often came at mass unemployment. Um, and as a consequence, interest rates rose very quickly. But because the Reserve Bank only had one measure that it was working against, which was the inflation rate, it didn't, it, it didn't care about unemployment. It wasn't part of its thinking. It didn't need to put it into its calculations. As a consequence, um, unemployment became an, an unhappy but necessary side effect um, of, the, of the desire to control inflation. In other jurisdictions that already had a dual mandate, um, they could lower inflation and, and increase the interest rates at a different pace and scale. And what that meant was you didn't see the very rapid rise in unemployment as we saw in New Zealand. And you also didn't see the very um, uh, fluctuating markets with the housing market, with mortgage rates, with everything else that you saw in New Zealand during that period of time. And let me give you one brief, very brief example of that happening in 2014. So Graham Wheeler in 2014, when he was the Reserve Bank governor, um, the inflation rate was um, then at the heady rate of 1.7%. Um, and he was um, reliably informed by his economists that inflation would start to rise above the 2% midpoint, and so he should do something about it. So he increased uh, interest rates twice in quick succession, up by 50 basis points, 0.5%. Um, and uh, lo and behold, inflation fell from 1.7% to 0.3%. Um, at the same time, unemployment rose, the economy slowed. Um, and at no point in time was inflation ever a real risk. At no point in time was inflation ever a real challenge to anyone, but that that monomania, that drive to just ta ta tackle one target, meant that you had a situation where um, people became a side effect 
of a policy that was supposed to assist them rather than actually the driving force behind why we're doing what we should be doing. And that's why the Reserve Bank's dual mandate is there. It's there to remind the Reserve Bank all the way through that there are people in the economy that matter as much as an inflation target. Um, I'm going to put a, my two bits in because I happen to live through this period. And I heard economists talking about how 5% unemployment was really good for the economy and good for the country. Well, they forget that if you, you lose your job, your family suffers, your housing suffers, your future suffers. We had so many people unemployed in the 90s that it lasted. We still have families suffering from this. They, their, their children were un, became unemployed. And if your children are unemployed, um, your grandchildren are likely to have a different attitude toward society than if they get a chance of getting a decent job. Matt, do you want to say anything about this? Yeah, well, it's, um, it's very interesting sort of going. I, 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 I obviously it brings all memories back. But let me, um, just for your, your, your viewers and your listeners, Marvin, is that the point is, I remember at the early days of the alliance, and this is sort of stuck in my mind and what Gavin was saying, and it was just reminding me of, of, of it, right, is that, um, is that uh, I, when I was in the States once, I always was curious because I used to go to the, the Chicago School of Economics. You know, this was the, yeah. the new, you know, the, the foundation of the new way forward, promoted by the Labour Party at the time, of course, um, because they come zealous because of a lot of economics. And they gave us all the palaver of why there's was, was no alternative, you know, and this was the way, the only way, this would be good for workers in the end. And a package deal, bringing in GST and, you know, cutting taxes at, at so it's sort of at, 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 at the top for the rich, because obviously the more you gave the rich, they could piss more on the poor, you know, uh, from, from, from higher heights. So I went and saw the Chicago School of Economics. They didn't know my politics. So I met with some uh, professor, I can't remember the name, so long ago. And I said, you know, this is about, you know, about uh, that, that they say that this will, uh, as they get inflation down, it'll create more, 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 more jobs. This is Roger Nomics or Roger Douglas sort of at the time. He looks at me with a face no, it doesn't. And he goes, no, 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 no. For this to work, we need 6% unemployment to keep the wages down so we can keep inflation down. So that was it very clearly from the from the wizard's mouth is that, no, it's not there. It was to help business, the rich, to get richer. And that's all it ever was and it will all ever be with. And I think we can get on to it in the, you know, corridor today, but... It's very much as that I think a lot of the problems or the challenges of the social democratic movement around the world is they've made peace with that economic sort of model and they sort of moderate it, but actually they believe it. So when the Donald Trumps come along and say, as the globalists, they're all against you, that's where you have the fertile ground because the left, the traditional left, have been replaced by this ideological um, view that the economics we've got a consensus on that and we need to concentrate on other issues. And I think that that, that goes to the key. So um, it's good you asked this question and I'm glad that someone who knew more detail could uh, could explain it to us. But I'm just using my more political um, experience, which, um, which um, you know, driven me, I must say. I'd agree with you, Matt. I think there was definitely uh, a period of time 
during the late 90s and early 2000s where, you know, the argument was if it's not hurting, it's not working. Um, and, um, and in reality, it wasn't hurting the, the very wealthy during that period of time, but it sure as hell was hurting everybody else. Um, and as a consequence, um, we, uh, uh, we attempted to crush inflation um, uh, uh, in the belief that, that, that some sort of economic Xanadu would then appear um, if we got inflation to 2%. Well, we got inflation to 2%. Um, and um, because we had unemployment at 6%, because we had house prices accelerating um, away, because we saw um, those on the very lowest incomes um, receive nothing in the form of the benefit from the tax cuts that were then offered, but then see their wages rise and just trickle up a little bit over that period of time and often fall behind the general price um, of goods and services. Um, uh, um, they were definitely hurting and they were definitely not, they were increasingly not working because unemployment was higher. Um, and that is that that led many countries to reevaluate re the use of single mandate um, measures. Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons why when Labour came to office in 2017, um, we wanted to move to that dual mandate approach because if for nothing, no other reason, it forces the Reserve Bank to acknowledge unemployment in its documents. It okay. forces the Reserve Bank to acknowledge how its, its movements of the interest rate impact unemployment in its documents. And it gives people a means by which they can, you know, target the Reserve Bank and say, well, you care about inflation, but you're also supposed to care about unemployment. And show me how you're delivering to that end. Now, I remember having a talk to Don Brash once um, in another life, and when he was a Reserve Bank governor, after me. And it was like, uh, yes, Minister Skip. Yeah, he goes, that's not our job. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, um, you know, my job is inflation. It's not, it, it, and I'm just reinforcing your position of the people unemployment is not a factor which I take into account. And so, you know, so that's when you realise it's all I, ideology. It's not politics, it's not common sense, and it's not realism, you know. And what it was was a number of MBA students at Austria who thought they were so clever, and they come up with this wonderful idea that if we, you know, help help mm. the rich, then that's going to help us all, you know. Mm. You know, and um, of course that was then taken as gospel and bought in by many of the left. You know? well, these uh, schools and institutions were funded by large corporations and. People that well, are very wealthy. They all are. You know, let's not get all conspiracy because we'll go mad. But they all are. Let's just accept, right? They're not fund funded for the public good. They're funded for for certain interests because they got the money. The left does not have the money. Also, I believe that um, neoliberalism has worked from the point of view of the rich. Oh, it's done well. wonderful. I mean, it's. I look, 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 wealth for rich people's kids that they can give to them for nothing, you know? All these layabouts, you know? So it's, it's, it's created a idle class for sure. But, you know, let's not get too political because I'll get all, all, all militant. Okay, yeah. Um, what do you, Craig and Matt, what do you expect from the new government? Do you want to go, Matt, or do you want me to go? Um, yeah, sorry, I just re realised Craig, I'd call you again because I, I, I've got a friend of mine who's, 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 who's got the same surname as you and he's a bit of a, an economist to me. 
Sorry, sorry about that. Um, 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 well, I think um, it, it would depend, of course, about the special votes on, on Friday. But I think we've got the general grasp. I think the danger is um, now it's been interesting the Act has been very quiet, very quiet. So I think they're keeping their power, powder dry in the sense of if Winston's in, sort of in, sort of in there, they're not going to get the leverage they they they, they have at, at the moment. Now I'm assuming the on on past performance, that's why nationals being all all kumbaya at the moment, is there will be a three a three headed government. But changes don't protect trees. I think um I I think that Lux will want to move to the but seen as a centrist, you know, like like a key fact back back actor. I think, um, Craig, for you and the union movement, I think they're going to go through some tough times, you know, because I think there's an ideological, and I have all those three three parties lined up. I mean, the only reason that the fair pay agreement didn't go through is because of Winston, you know, and so um, he, he's, he's no friend of organised labour. And so I think that the union movement, I, I think that's going to be the main fight. I, I, I think that's the main fight. And um, I think the poor are going to get poorer, and I think their tax on workers, particularly in the public services, where the government can do a lot of harm, and 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 and, and you know you can speak to that from the CCCCU. So I, so that's where my focus is. I I think the rest that Labor, I mean there'll be some of the social issues. You know, one sense they are kind of where we all get excited, but but um, that Labor managed things better. But they still went along with the play, the playbook, you know. And so, you know, the poor are still poor, you know. And I think, you know, you know more. I think that they, 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 they squandered. Craig, what do you think about the? Will the union movement be in a in a place to defend itself? Well, the union movement, regardless of who is in office, um, has to be in a place to defend its members and, and workforces around the country. Um, it's not just one, you know, uh, Matt can tell you much better history than me about um, uh, governments of, of both colours that have attacked um, workers' um, rights yeah. um, during periods of time. Um, but... What I would say is that, um, you know, the, the, this government is very likely um, to, to, to return to office, um, likely with um, a third coalition partner, um, uh, so, you know, a third political party as part of that. But... It's very likely to return in a way that believes that everything since 2017 didn't happen. And as a consequence, it wants to rewind the clock um, on everything back to 2017 as if things were right at that point in time. And everything else since then was just an aberration. Um, so fair pay agreements will go contracting reform. Um, we'll go Holidays Act reform. They will go um, the increasing um, their push towards workers' rights in in subcontracting um, and in uh, you know and in areas like pay equity, pay transparency um, may well then disappear, and that's before we get to um, you know um, uh, um, any changes that they may wish to see in terms of um, employment relations. Um, this government, to 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 its credit, has supported um, you know um, increasing tripartite working where they've brought businesses in and CTU into the room to help tackle policy problems. That will end. Um, and worker um, voice in many uh, government decisions will effectively end, is my expectation. And so um, the key challenge and the key fight will be for the union movement, and I think for not just the union movement, but for NGOs of all sorts 
around New Zealand is how to put worker voice back into conversations, how to put New Zealanders' voices into conversations. So it isn't just the top end of town dictating what's going on. Um, but importantly, to keep issues alive so that they don't just disappear and we think this is settled again. There are plenty of things that are not right in New Zealand. Um, and the loss of fair pay agreements will be mourned by us. But we also have a job of work to do to make sure we don't lose collective bargaining in New Zealand during this period of time, that we don't lose the ability um, you know, to, to work, to talk as one voice as workers to employers and to engage with employers on an equal footing during um, this, this forthcoming government. And, and finally, to make sure that the public services that we rely upon don't end up being nibbled away, um, you know, um, to either to nothing or to a privatized state during the next few years. And that's one of the real risks to me is that, um, you know, uh, there's, there's death by a thousand cuts and people start to buy their own way out of public services because the public services become so um, nondescript and, and useless because they're starved for so many funds. And you, then it becomes a sell them. You're seeing this with health already. People, including people like Chris Hitchens, are buying health insurance because they don't want to depend on the hospital system. But the average person has to depend on the hospital system. They can't afford insurance. And if you've got any health problems or you're a certain age, it's even harder to afford health insurance. Well, I don't want to speak to Chris's individual circumstances, but what I would say is that um, the first best solution for health is to have a well-funded, well-organized, publicly available, free at the point of delivery health service that works for everyone. And then you don't need any of that. Um, and the reason we do that is not because um, uh, uh, you know, I will benefit from it. We do it is because we all benefit from it. Everyone benefits from having a healthier workforce, from having healthy kids, from making sure that we don't suffer in later life. And everyone benefits from that decision rather than everyone choosing to opt out to benefit themselves. And if you end up in that situation, you end up with the U.S. health service, and nobody wants that here in New Zealand. If we're going to keep a healthy health, a health system, or actually, if we're going to get a healthy health system, I'm not sure we kept a healthy health system, don't we actually have to increase taxation? Well, I think not. We're not for the poor anyway, the working people. Their taxes are not going to rise. Um, and I think that, that Labor's missed um, a great opportunity to move the tax burden from the working people onto the, um, you know, on, on, sort of onto um, uh, passive wealth. I think that was uh, squandered. I know there's been some internal divisions about that at the senior level where David Barker actually stepped away from his portfolio. I think what, what the left um, has failed to do, I think, um, in the last six years, is selling the idea of, of, of fair taxation. You know, And they, they had that opportunity when COVID came in because people came together and they saw that we can only do this by being collective. And I think that Jacinda was actually right and very, I thought it was a very good thing for her when she talked about 10, 5, 5, 5 million. It's post-war as well, post-World War II, that people say we've got to do things differently. And I think that, you know, that, that Labour then just got defensive about the COVID thing, which I think was a mistake, and then pretend it never happened and then just went on as business as usual. But people were ready. When, when the state is having to pay the small businesses 580 bucks a week for their workers, 
and 19,000 bucks on no interest loans and that. That's the state propping up, you know, business. And of course, then they gave all the money to the banks to give to property owners to buy more properties. It was all skewed. And so under COVID, the rich got richer. They just got richer. It was all by the state. Instead of saying, look, we have to do things differently now, you know, and I think there was a public appetite for it. And what's happened is, is we didn't change that fundamental unfairness. And so what we talk, and when they did talk about, and this is the left, I, I have a bit of a criticism about, is it came down, oh, capital gains tax, and, you know, this is a good thing. For but we never sold the benefits of that. And so it's just seemed to totally the middle of New Zealand, another bloody tax. We seem to have a fetish about taxes. The problem with taxes, working people are paying the taxes. Well, the and so what we have to do is win that public ar 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 argument. You know, when property, when a landlord has no capital gains and doesn't have to pay tax and gets a tax subsidy and the properties he's been going up and the, and the, and the tenants are paying more taxes than the owner and the one who, who controls their lives, then there's something skewed about that. Doesn't it also that? mean that people are investing in houses that are already built, rental houses, instead of uh, building new factories or finding ways to add value to oh, New Zealand? That's right. You're finding the passive. There's no risk in how, although they could say that now, but, but I mean, it's been a pretty good, you know, they make more than an average wage by, by, by going to sleep, you know, um, than working. And so we encourage that, right? The encouragement, well, I'll, I'll leave this to, to Craig to to, to, to the thing, but, you know, where's the encouragement to put it into active businesses, not property passive wealth, which only puts the price of price of homes up where nobody from a work at home can afford a new house unless they get their help from, 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 from their parents. That's the society which we've created. Under... The last 20 years under successive Labour-led led government, which have had very similar policies to national on property, very similar, haven't challenged it at all. I think that's you know, there's essentially three reasons why we need tax reform. One of which is we have a taxation system that encourages investment, as you talked about, Marvin, in highly unproductive assets. If you buy a house, you don't get anything more out of it. You just get a house. You get the existing property that's there and you get an income stream with it. But all we do is we push the value of those income streams up um, with the current uh, lack of capital gains tax um, uh, in New Zealand. And so um, reform helps to shift investment from unproductive assets into hopefully more productive assets, capital plants, equipment, innovation, R&D, those things we actually want to see in New Zealand and the things we're actually bad at um, right now. Um, in terms of... The second part, um, we want to see taxation change because New Zealand has the third most efficient, um, to use that phrase, um, tax system in the world behind Estonia and Latvia. We have a more tax efficient system than Switzerland and Luxembourg. That's not me. That's the Global Tax Institute. Um, and when we say efficient, what we mean is it's low, it's lightly regulated, and it doesn't um, distort investment decisions as they see it. Um, now, um, we could look at the countries that are very high on that list and we would see there are a bunch of tax havens and there are some countries where the economies don't do very well. We look at the countries that have that are slightly lower down that list and they're the countries that have more productive, more sustainable and more inclusive economies that we actually want to see and actually the things that New Zealanders want to see. So 
we need to shift the, the, the needle on that. And then thirdly, um, we need um, our tax system to be um, efficient, but we also need our spending to be efficient. We can't just chuck money at things and then assume that the problems will go away. And the problem with that is we've, you know, the, the, the muscle memory of the public service has been, has been led to rot for so many years um, because we've underused the state as a tool for delivering goods and services and overused arguably the private sector as a tool for delivering okay. goods and services. It's going to take a really long time to rebuild that muscle memory in New Zealand, but we should commit to it because we actually end up with better services, better delivered for people without a profit motive in New Zealand if we do that. I have a friend who's in the public service and that person, they hate on contracting out. They say it destroys the institutional memory and makes the public service yes, less efficient, less useful. And it's a waste of money. And they also pay those contractors you know, a million dollars of fortune. It's like... We don't, we, oh, sorry, that's one of the big changes, Marvin, is, is, is what is going to happen. There's going to be a, 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 a gutting of the public service, the core public service, well, not core public, but, but the services around the public service. There'll be more uh, contracting out, more um, more um, put, put in, putting things out to private enterprise, and we'll see that in the schools and in the health system. I think um, they will use a lot of the non-profit um, to, to, to do that. Then they will get into it because they need it for their funding. And I think that will just, and that I think, that I think is going to be, the, well, I'll say one of the biggest challenges for the, C, the, CC, the CCTU to handle because that's going to be pretty ruthless. Because that's something which I think their core base will support. Right? Because they've built up enough saying that public service is useless, it's not doing its job, it's not, you know, they've got all the great criticism. And they went on the election campaign saying that. That's why I think they're going to do it. And that's why I think the Act has been very quiet, because it wants to get those levers. And if Winston's there, that they may not be able to get, to get to get it. But I think we're in for a ride around that. The, um, don't we need to actually have taxes to deal with climate change and resilience? You can't build structure that's going to be in the public good and controlled by the public unless you actually are willing to raise taxes for those who can afford to pay them. Well, there's, there's two taxes here, um, Marvin. And, you know, um, us economists like to use pretentious phrases because it means we're going to afford our expensive suits. And one of them um, is um, a Pugovian tax, uh, which simply just means the polluter pays. So when someone emits a ton of carbon, they pay a tax. On, on that basis. Um, and we have a tax um, in that space. But what we've chosen to do, or what the incoming government is proposing to do, is rather than using that tax and the revenue from that tax to help to reduce future emissions, to help to you know deliver a just transition for workforces that are affected by climate change, they've chosen to take $2.3 billion of climate taxes, and they've chosen to give $2.3 billion in tax cuts to landlords. And so it's essentially a choice, like everything else is in the economy. They've made a choice to, uh, to, 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 to say the future liabilities of New Zealanders in terms of climate change, we don't care about. The future us will pay for them. The future me is more handsome and capable than me right now. And so um, 
we'll give that to landlords as a sweetener so that they get some more money because Lord knows landlords haven't done very well over the past 20 years in New Zealand. As he says, for the benefit of the tape, highly ironically. Um, so that Pugovian tax system absolutely requires a state, requires a strong state and requires a state to collect tax and use it for the benefits of everyone in reducing our future liabilities. Secondly, we also need to, to be um, levying some taxes in the climate change base to stop activities and to encourage people to move towards more climate friendly um, activities, be it in the form of um, you know, uh, 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 electronic cars, be it in the form of um, heat pumps and housing, be it in the form of home insulation, which is actually um, one of the best things we can do of any spend um, in New Zealand right now. But we need to be doing that in ways that are sensitive, in ways that are actually careful, in ways that don't put costs onto low-income families. We can ratchet up the price of fuel of 91, but all that happens is poor South Auckland families who have to drive everywhere because of where they live end up paying more money. Um, whereas wealthy people like me, um, who, who for the benefit of the table, I don't own a Tesla, but if I did, I actually get a benefit if you put the price of fuel up. And so it's about doing so in ways that deliver a just transition. And that idea of a just transition where you're making changes, but you're levying those costs onto those who can pay those costs and bear those costs to deliver a better transition for everyone. I'm glad you said that because when you said it's, it's taxing the polluters and that's a, that's a popular thing for the middle classes because it feels good. But of course, when you do that, the cost goes on working people, right? Because they don't have choice. So I'm glad you said yeah. that because, because that's absolutely uh, right. And it's always about, it's about what do we use that money for and that transition, right? So that people um, do. But I think that that's a public debate that is continuing. But you know, when, when Jacinda, when she um, first um, won election, she said that climate change was the the nuclear moment for her generation. Well, then there's not been much, you know, leadership on that question. Now, we're a small country in the middle of nowhere, so no one cares. Um, but it is about a responsibility. And I think you can do things in this country, you know, it's harder in bigger countries because governments is, you know, are on three or four year cycles and businesses are on a quarterly cycle, sort of cycle. And, uh, but environmental issues are on, on, on decades five cycles and there's no votes in it. So robbing, um, one part of the economy and giving it to landlords who all vote, um, that's, that, that drives those, uh, those, uh, those decisions. So the public debate is really important. I'm instinctively against taxes for the public good. When it's used, when who's paying? Someone's always paying. Who's paying? You know. And so my thing is, is that states have got to do more regulation, right? Because if it's bad, you regulate it, right? You know. If we think that you know robbing a bank is a bad thing, then you regulate this is a crime. But what we don't do, we don't stop businesses. So you know, it's like sugar and drinks. See, we don't make any rules about it. We just let them do it, and and the left goes, well, let's tax it. Well, who's going to pay that tax mm -hmm. on soft drinks? It's the poor. Are we saying, well, you know, I could be convinced of a sugar tax if you say, then that's going to fund a free dental care, because at least it's connected, you know? Yeah. But what we do is we use it as punishment, like, you know, so I call them the sin taxes. You know, we think of bad things that the poor do, the working people do, you know, mm -hmm. so we tax that, and that will change people who have their minds. And I'm just thinking that's a middle-class view. You know, they have to change behavior. And look, 
statistics that might work. I, I just instinctively think it's a bad way to approach them. I think I, sometimes I, you have un, unintentional consequences. Like I think they made cigarettes so expensive that uh, gangs uh, can use them for making money. From they go into a, the dairies and they steal cigarettes, and they're that's, big deal. That, that's that idea of that just transition. Is that yeah, what you no, do? I like that. I like you, that. You plan that change. So the best example I can give you um, around the world um, is um, when the German coal mines in the Tsar closed, they closed 30 years before they actually closed. And one of the first things they stopped doing was training new coal miners because they were training people in jobs that weren't going to exist. And they meant that everybody who left the pit had a job to go to. And when the pit closed, there was a, still a thriving local economy and a thriving local community. Elsewhere in the world, when they closed coal mines, they locked the door and threw the key in the sea. And that lack of that just transition not only scarred that generation, it scars three generations from that. And if your answer to climate change is to force everyone to buy a Nissan Leaf, get a better answer. Because the challenge we have is not that people don't want to support the environment. People don't want to, to pollute the environment. People don't want to do that. The challenge is they're forced to by their circumstances. Okay. So give them the means by which they can change those circumstances and support them. And actually the change will come much faster and in a much more sensitive way than it would do just by hiking the, the price of fuel at a particular point in time. You've teed me up. Very good. The um, other thing that I'm concerned about is that that I think democracy has slightly been skewed in the last 20 years or more. And I've noticed that center-left democratic parties and labor parties, particularly in the English-speaking country, have lost their mandate and also lost support. And you've gotten people like Trump and you've got Brexit because of this. Um, the... Labour parties used to have a history and tradition of representing the working class, broadly speaking. What does the term working class now include? Are university professors, lawyers, doctors, and bank executives part of the working class? Do factory workers, cleaners, supermarket workers, nurses, aides, and bus drivers, as shown by their participation and support of left-wing parties, show a feeling of being well-represented politically? Or they have, or is their representation, are they in doubt that they're really well represented? I think there's a, 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 anyone who, a, the answer here, Markman, is the answer that it was 50 years ago, it was 100 years ago. Anybody who relies upon the provision of their labor in order to provide sustenance for them and their family um, as the main means of, of income into their household is working class. Um, and so uh, rather than someone who relies upon another means be, of, of providing that income to their household. Um, so the university professors are absolutely working class. Uh, same as someone who works in a, in a supermarket, same as someone who, um, you know, an, an economist for a trade union. Um, you know, um, that we're, we're all working class because at the end of the day, our income stops when we stop working. Okay. I agree with you in theory, but there's a heck of a lot of difference between somebody working in a supermarket and somebody uh, as a senior lecturer or professor at a university. They have different interests, actually. No, what we're talking about is security of income. And that's where the real difference lies, is that um, tall, handsome, white economists like me might find ourselves 
uh, with much higher levels of income security because we've credentialized our learning and we can sell those credentials, i.e. those bits of paper, to employers who come around. And there's few of us and there's lots of somebody else. And so we are happy in our income stream because we can see that. And so we are more secure. Workers who are less secure and who um, often have to trade jobs or change jobs much more quickly and often not at the times of their own choosing um, may well support um, different policies or ideas. Um, but we're all working class. And fundamentally, the challenge we have is not how do we make me more insecure? The challenge is how do we make them more secure? How do we make them more um, okay. confident and comfortable in their lives? Because the job of, mm. uh, of progressive politics is not to make the country better. It is to make the country better, but every politician will tell you we're going to make the country better. Um, it's how do we make your life better and easier? And a big part of making your life easier is giving you income security. And giving you income yeah. security takes away so many of the challenges that you have and so much of the support for Trump, so much of the support for Boris Johnson, for Bolsonaro, for others, was a call to restore that income security rather than for, for support for the policies that they were delivering, often which were, were completely at odds with the delivery of the income security that those workers were actually really after. I guess that's, that's part of the answer, but I also think that at one time, labor parties and social democratic parties had a large percentage of their representatives, a large percentage of the policy uh, people that helped make policy we're actually from, uh, we're former builders, uh, cleaners, and bus drivers, tramway drivers. And you don't find that anymore. It's a metocracy, and 99% oh, of that metocracy has got to graduate from university, often more than one degree. Yeah. And Matt, Matt, I understand the point you're making, and you're right. Okay, so, so it's two different, we're having two different discussions, right? The nature of the working class, you know, is if you rely on your income for your labour, brawn or, or, or brain, then you're part of the working movement, you know? What's happened is, is that the, the makeup of the working class has changed, you know, as innovations come in, that things are, they went, you know, is that who wants to aspire to be a cleaner? You know, like, you know, that, that the, the leaders of the working class movements is how to make life better and easier and have, re, you know, meaningful work, rewarding work, things that sort of matter. So that has been happening. And so, and, but the nature of, you know, the run to universities has meant a lot of the uh, jobs that, that, that people are attracted into do have more control of their life, have time, are thinking about things. Where the working class who are in that in in, in that uh, no security work environment is they they have not been able to participate, and so the participation within a civil society has meant that those who are in a privileged position within the working class, you know, state servants and people who who have white collar jobs, which are increasing, the blue collar jobs have got less and less and less, and that's not a bad thing. You know, sticking kids down a mine is not a kind of a career. Yep. You know, um, um, and 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 um, you know, and that is changing. That's probably a good thing. Right, it's a good thing. And I think the challenge for the left is that the security, the security of income, because that's what's driving 
the impulses of the working class, the part of the working class which feels left behind, and there's a lot of it, you know, and this is the challenge, I think, for the left and the social democratic societies. So in terms of its representation, Marvin, I think that's also about those who've got the time. I think in, when I was a kid, and now you were a kid, um, it, it is that the leadership of the trade union movement came within its own ranks. You know, there's been professionalisation of it. You know, and so I think that's a bit of a challenge. You know, it's, it's inevitable, I think, maybe. But I think that just about, because when I, my observation in Auckland here with the young trade, trade unionists, almost inevitably they can't, don't come from within the ranks of the union that they represent. They come from a professional, you know, and, and they are professional sort of officials. And I think that, that, that can sometimes be a bit of a, um, and that's got lost, you know, there, you know, of coming from the shop floor. And, um, and it's good and bad. I think, I think, I think, I think you need to mix. But I think it's been more professional, so it's more of an intellectual sort of argument. You can be conscious of it, but just to put um, a blue-collar worker into Parliament, it doesn't mean their politics are any good, you know, because that's up to, you know, there's been some right fascists who go into things, I'm a blue-collar worker, yeah, all right, but you're a right-wing mongrel. Um, but, but, I think, I, I, but I think the issues affecting blue-collar workers, those workers have been left. I think that's the responsibility now of the left and the trade union movement. Their numbers within the organised labour in those communities has got smaller. So it's growth. And this is the, C, the CEU challenge, right? Merging the FOL and the, you know, and the state unions into the FOL was always going to raise this question. And so what we have now is the Central Trade Union organisation, the CEU, is that its funding and its leadership comes out of the white collar unions. Okay. You know? and I, you Craig, know, well, can you I, speak I, to I, that? I, you have to I, leave I, shortly. So. From lots of places, but I think one of the things I'd say there is that I agree with Matt that there's a um, there's an escalator um, that used to exist um, that used to take uh, um, articulate passionate people um, who were working in communities, working in factories, working in, in blue-collar jobs, as, as Matt called them, and uh, and gave them avenues into politics that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, uh, in the UK, we have a thing called Ruskin College, Oxford, which was the trade union college at Oxford. And it used to take people who were shop, shop stewards, representatives in places, and it would give them a political finishing school so that they then had the ability to then make um, political articulations elsewhere. We, you know, there, there are lots of examples. I'm just, I, I myself am a beneficiary of this. I've been to the Harvard Trade Union Program in the US, um, which essentially is that in the US for American um, uh, trade unions and Canadian trade unions. And that ability to provide those, those escalators of change and those escalators of, of mobility for those individuals to put them into parliament and to give them voice, those things have, have disappeared. Those things have narrowed. And it's no surprise that the representation of those groups in Parliament and trade union density have fallen at the same time. Um, mm. And I think that's the real challenge is how do we grow both how do we grow both so that we get both those voices back into um or, or the places where we make decisions about the country so we don't forget about those individuals. But also how do we do so in ways that are sustainable, that are growing those those avenues of opportunity again that have been lost over the past 30 years. Um, and with that, Marvin, I'm terribly sorry, but I, I have to go. 
forgive me. Okay, that's fine. Um, they'll, be, they'll be talking with you, Matt. Okay. Okay. Matt, we're going to continue, but I'm going to play one song, and then we'll get back in well, about 10 minutes. All right, Mike.
we were talking with Craig, who had to go back to to work, and we're talking with Matt McCartan about uh, the politics of of wealth and, and inequality, really. Now, Matt, what are the chances? The working people's, um, certainly blue-collar workers and, and such, first defense is themselves collectively organized. Isn't that, would, that, would you agree with that? You hear me? Oh. Something is wrong here. This one? Oh, I didn't remember taking that down. Hello, can you hear me now? No, I can't, I can't hear him. I can hear you. Oh, good. That's fine. Um, do you, what would you consider the, the best in the defense that uh, ordinary working people have? Well, what we had, and you know, we really didn't really um, tease, tease it out when Craig was here, but what you've got is you've got very much a individualist and that's a very middle class thing of how we approach a problem. Where the union movement's all about the uh, Yeah, go ahead. I agree with you. But so carry on. So what we've got is is, is about you've got it we don't campaign. You know, we, we, we think sending out a press release or put something on the web on social media, that's campaign. That's not campaign. You know, it's campaigning around issues that concern work working people, you know. In the old days you learn more about a sense of community and collective action, which, you know, in the old days, it's called a strike, you know, and you took collective action to improve your, your position. What we've done, I think, as a movement in the world, is we have replaced that of collective action for individual action. And so, you know, the nature of the working class has changed, you know, it's more middle class, and the middle class activists run the show, you know, and so... The, the people who are on Struggle Street, you know, the economic questions, that's the only thing which drives them, right? And if you can get that right, then they'll open up. Like, as someone who's been in the trade union all my adult life, it's like, that's the education. Because people first get involved in the union movement or in politics because of something they saw as unfair or to advance an action which they know improves themselves and build solidarity with other people. I was lucky at the age of 18 to be involved in a, in a almost town-wide industrial action strike action and won because no one could run the town without the workers. And so that, for my political view, collective action, we don't do that anymore. And so what has happened is, is that the is, is people have become more atomized and then the media, run by the corporations, of course, has all your success is your own individual efforts and all your failures are your own individual efforts or lack of them. And so what we're doing is depressions up, you know, people were okay. to themselves and isolated. So what we lost is the collective nature of working class. Okay, I uh, think you hit it on the nose and we're, we're out of time, but I think we you hit it on the nose, Matt. 
and I'll catch you again sometime soon. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.